we have quite a variety of various uh, dinners we're having on Thursday nights, and we come up with different themes. Uh, one of the reasons we did that, first of all, we enjoy the, the variety, but secondly, if we're going to do uh, have, have a meal at church for you know, consecutive weeks, uh, traditionally when you have a dinner at church, everybody brings whatever they want, and, and it's delicious, and you kind of like that variety, but you know, if you do that too often, that gets kind of old, so we broke it up a little bit. But growing up, going to church a lot. Uh, this was my, the way my nose works anyway. There was always a very distinct smell about a church dinner, a, a potluck. Um, it, in my church, we called it covered dish. And, um, and that was good for good reason because I think the, as, as the spread of food was put out, there was a lot of casserole dishes. And there, and there was a lot of pasta in those dishes with various things. Maybe it was, um, maybe it was something with tuna, or maybe it was uh, ziti, or whatever. But and then there was always meat and potatoes growing up in the Pennsylvania Dutch area. But it was all good, and I enjoyed it. And there was that the, the smell kind of came together, and, and with, with the coffee that was brewing, it's a very unique and special smell that I that I always enjoy. Part of church life, food's important to church. Food's important to our lives. Peter had to learn a lesson about food because the way Peter grew up, food wasn't just something you enjoy when you got together with your fellow, um, fellow Jews at the synagogue or the temple. There was something ritualistic about the food, and, and not just the food itself, but what you can and cannot eat, what you should and should not eat as a devout Jew. So with, with that in mind, some of the most difficult aspects of life to change are what we eat, who we spend time with, and what we believe about God. When food and friends are important elements of a cherished but inadequate belief system, change is extremely challenging. Anyone who diets or tries to diet, whether you're successful or not at it, understands how hard it is to change eating habits. You know, and even if it's just you want to be more healthy, you want to knock off a few pounds, or you know, maybe there's another reason, something your doctor said, you have to stop eating this particular food, it's not good for you, etc. But we know how hard that is, don't we? And, and the older we get, the, the patterns that we've developed and the people we spend time with generally don't change. And maybe if you are a very social person, you look forward to meeting new people and you don't mind that. If you're more introverted, you might not look for that and maybe feel really awkward in a social situation, like if you got put at a banquet table at a wedding where you don't know anyone or very few of them. And we, we tend to avoid those things. And there comes together food and fellowship and people once again. And all of that is you know, just day-to-day -day things that we deal with for various reasons. But when you put that together with your religion, it gets even harder. That's why God had to intervene with a dream, with a vision. Not just for Peter, but the person he was going to reach. Because these factors were obstacles to the gospel going into the rest of the world, into the Gentile world what you eat, who you spend time with, the rules you follow. All of that meant a lot. And we'll get into more detail about that. just want to follow Peter's course here for a moment. He has begun there in the bottom in Jerusalem, of course, and 
He did go into Samaria on the map at one point. We see about that earlier in Acts. But in, in the ninth and 10th chapter, he's gone to, into Lydda. And then he's, he's called into Joppa. And Lydda, he healed a paralytic man. In Joppa, he, he brought this woman, Tabitha, back to life, a, a very beloved woman in that church, in that, in that town. Now today, he's going up to Caesarea. And that part of the reason I want to show you the map, because you can see, look, when we talk about Damascus, that was way up off the map. At least the map I have on the screen here, on the upper right corner. So that was quite a long journey. But Caesarea to Joppa, along the coast where the travel is easier, was maybe 50 miles. So still a good distance on foot, but it wasn't something you could do that you know, in a day or two. And, and that's indeed what happens in this story. So God is moving Peter into a place where he's going to continue to teach and reach the leader of the apostles. And we've seen, we had this slide a couple of weeks ago, it's worth looking at again, just to be reminded of how God from time to time in, in the book of Acts intervenes. And, and there, that just means there's something really important that has to get accomplished that that he's going to send an angel or or work in other ways. And he sent two men dressed in white in Acts 1, but when Jesus ascended to heaven to get them moving, they were staring up into the sky. Hey, fellas, come on, go. What did he tell you to do? Go to Jerusalem. An angel came and set all the apostles free in the fifth chapter because the church is still very young, and these are the leaders, and, and who knows what the Sanhedrin might do to them being in prison. So they were set free from the prison by an angel. Stephen is said to have the face of an angel before he was very sadly um, put to death by the Sanhedrin. An angel came and, and told Philip where to go to meet an Ethiopian man who was baptized and excited about being told what, what the scriptures, how the scriptures were fulfilled in Jesus Christ being the Messiah. And he took that message back to Africa. So the gospel goes on. A light from heaven. The voice of Jesus is what Saul experienced. And we looked at that um, last week and, and how, last couple of weeks, his conversion experience, what that meant was going to be so important to the gospel being taken into the rest of the world as they were directed in Acts 1. A vision is given now to a man named Cornelius and a trance, pretty much the same thing, given to Peter. And Cornelius is a Roman centurion, and Peter, a devout Jew, has to learn something about what it means to be clean and unclean. And Peter would have another prison break experience in in Acts, as would Paul one day, too. But let's look at this guy, Cornelius. Now, I mentioned Caesarea was about 50 miles north of of Joppa, where, where Peter was at this point. And... This town is within the traditional borders of Israel. Now, in that town, there were a fair number of Gentiles, and many of them, as was the case with Cornelius, were there because there was a Roman uh, military base in that town. And so, and had been there for quite some time, so that became their home. So, and, and what you find as you go, as we go further into Acts, the further they get away from Jerusalem and Judea and Galilee, the, the center where the majority of the population is Jewish, you'll still find a Jewish population, you'll find Gentile population, and they pretty much get along well enough, okay? They, they, 
they kind of go their, their own way. Once in a while, there might be a dust-up about various things, but they've learned to, to coexist, at least, in, uh, in their various towns. And such was the case in Caesarea. While it was still within Israel, there were a lot of Gentile people, including this man, who's described as a God-fearing, praying, Gentile leader of Roman soldiers. Now, that's a loaded description, but... but We'll see why that's important and, and what that says to Peter on the surface, what that would say to any Jewish person on the surface. But God hears the prayer of this Gentile leader of Roman soldiers. To be a God-fearer was a, is a term you'll find in both Testaments. Um, it usually means that it's a person who is not Jewish but has basically adopted the, the law of Moses and, and, the, and the ways of following God according to the law of Moses and the prophets and the Jewish people, which is, by the way, welcomed in the Old Testament, in the law of Moses. They, the, God never wanted them to be exclusive and unto themselves and don't ever welcome anyone else in. And, and if you want further proof of that, just look at the genealogies leading up to Jesus. There are outsiders, non-Jews throughout, Ruth being one of them, and who was the grandmother of David. And, you know, so, and it, it all traces down to Jesus. So God has always intended and has indeed used other people who were outside the fold of the, of the, the Jewish population, the, the Jewish nation. And yet, we still get the sense that even the apostles in this new way of thinking about their God through Christ are not quite ready to say, well, y'all come. Everybody can come. You're, you're all welcomed at the foot of the cross. You're all welcome to, to um, hear the message of, of salvation through him, the gospel, and you know, receive him, and all those terminologies we're familiar with, especially in, the, in evangelical circles. And yet, the apostles weren't quite there yet, including Peter. Now, the, in, in Luke 7, I won't take time to read it, but you may remember um, the story of a, a Roman centurion who came to Jesus asking that his, his servant, who's like a son to him, would, would be healed. And Jesus was amazed at his faith because although Jesus said, I will come right now, well, let's go. And he said, no, you don't, don't, don't come to my house. If you say the word, I'll believe. And Jesus, Jesus was just blown away by how much faith that Roman centurion had. So this is not the same man that was a different place, but it just gives you a consistent picture that there were people outside of, their, of Judaism who were seeking God even before Jesus accomplished all of his work, going to the cross, rising again. And especially after that, they were embracing God. So here's this man, Cornelius, that God gives this strange vision to. He's afraid, but God says this to him. Something else about that. Um, it says in verse 4, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering to God. Now keep in mind, Gentiles were not allowed into the temple. 
they were allowed in the temple courts because there was an area of the temple court. Remember, we looked at that last year. The, the temple court was the size of two and a half football fields. So part of that area was an area that Gentiles could worship. But what they couldn't do was enter into the temple itself. And the way that the thinking would go then, well, if they can't go into the temple, that they're not part of us, then their sins are not forgiven, and, and God's ignoring them, or God doesn't love them, or, it, which wasn't true, but that was the mindset of people in Jerusalem especially. But here you have God saying, your prayers and gift of the poor have come up to me. Like, he's, he's, he acknowledges this man's faith, expressed in prayer and expressed in a kind and giving heart. And God sees it. And that's why he, he chose this particular man. <clears throat> How about Peter? The spirit-filled, law-abiding, praying Jewish leader of the apostles. You'd think he'd be ready to receive Gentiles. You'd think he'd be ready to take the message of Christ to all the world and to recognize that this is genuinely and literally and truthfully for everyone. But he's not there yet. So Peter has a dream as well, a trance it says. And he's at the house, which we saw at the end of the last chapter, of someone named Simon the Tanner. And it must have been a, a fairly nice house. Uh, Simon the Tanner must have had a good business going because it tells us that when the three men who were, who were sent from Caesarea by Cornelius arrive at the gate. You, if, even today, how many of us have a gate at our house? Maybe you have a little gate at the end of your walkway. I don't know. In town, that's perhaps a little more common. But in that time, if you had a gate, that meant that was probably a, a pretty nice home and, and was, was fairly large. And so this is where, where Peter was, was staying. And Peter is a very devout man. Now, this is an important aspect to understand what's going on in the story. Peter, although, of course, was the leader of the apostles, was literally among the first to be a Christian, although they didn't call it then, but in other words, a follower of Jesus Christ, in that they believed his death and resurrection was the way to life, eternal life, which means not just heaven, but means the best life, uh, life of the ages is how you can actually translate eternal life back into the Greek. And so... Peter embraced that. Peter believed that. P Peter led the effort to get the word out, especially when the Spirit came on Pentecost. But he was still thinking that the, the ways of the law of Moses and of my people still matter, and the rest did. And Jesus never expressly told them, don't bother with this anymore. Throw the law of Moses away and all those rituals and all those rules, and all those food laws. So they continued to, to respect the Sabbath. They continued to go to the feast. They continued to, to do most of the things they had always done. And then they said, oh, by the way, we're, we're praising God even more wholeheartedly as Jews because the long-awaited Messiah has indeed come. And, and you, you put him to death, but he's risen again, and he still loves you, so you're welcome together in this, this new way way to God. 
So on the one hand, that was a good way to reach his own people, and many did come. On the other hand, ultimately, God knew that to continually embrace what we'd call the Old Testament was going to be an obstacle in order to reach the Gentile world. And so Peter just thought he's doing what he's supposed to do as a good, godly, devout Jewish man. And in this, in this passage, he's, he's praying. It's about noon. He's going to go to prayer. He goes up on the roof of this home. Um, most homes, uh, especially nicer ones, would have a, an outside staircase up to a flat roof, which was, we'd probably call it a deck today. Okay, so you could, do, you could have food up there and have, you know, uh, have a party or whatever you want to do. But there would also be an awning of some sort. So to go up there in the heat of the day, you'd have a little bit of shade. So that's probably the, the situation that, that Peter is in. And um, so he's, he gets this dream. And these animals come down on some kind of a sheet. That's the best as he can describe it. And he sees all kinds of animals. Now what's important to recognize here is this was not... A, a sheet filled with um, just pigs or, or all the foods that they couldn't eat. They were there, but there was other foods there that were okay. Presumably, let's say there was sheep on that. There was bulls on that. There, there were things that, that were part of their diet, part of the kosher, we'd say today, or Jews would say today. And so that was part of their of their practice was to only eat particular foods and everything else is, is an important word in this passage, unclean. It's unclean. And Peter says to God, in spite of this trance, in spite of this powerful dream, I can't eat that. I've never eaten anything like that. And part of the reason that he could probably say that um, with integrity is because the laws about food were so strong that the whole community just only ate that kind of food. And so there wouldn't be any of the other options there for the most part. Now, if you lived in a place like Caesarea or other, if you lived in a town far from Israel where you, there was a synagogue and a Jewish community in that town, they certainly perhaps were tempted to eat other things, but they would keep one another accountable. And so you eat what you've always eaten. So it isn't just a, a, a question about being devout according to the law of Moses. It is also just accustomed to what he's always eating. It doesn't even look good to him. Why would I eat a pig, God? I'm, I'm not going to do that. And because these animals in the vision were mixed together somehow or you know, um, all standing, you know, again, it's, it's a dream, all standing on this sheet side by side in close proximity to one another. More strict Jewish adherents would say that because there's a pig standing next to the sheep, that makes the sheep unclean because the pig's unclean. Okay? So it wasn't as if Peter, in the dream, was willing to go, oh, I'm going to pick out the stuff that's kosher, the stuff that's okay, and I'm going to eat that, and I'm going to, as a good Jewish boy, I'm going to push the rest away or ignore them. And then God says, what I have made clean is clean. And this happened three times. This, this dream keeps on repeating. <clears throat> 
So what's God trying to convey to Peter? How God leads Peter toward the change that he needed to have. Because he, he's so key to getting the gospel message out to everyone. He's so key to fulfilling Acts 1 directive to go to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. And if Peter isn't on board, then the other apostles weren't going to get on board. And, and, and even though God called Saul to go and do that, Saul seemed willing from the get-go to reach the Gentiles, if the, he's not going to get cooperation from Peter and the apostles in Jerusalem, it's not going to go well. It's not going to go far. And we'll see there's a continuing fight further into Acts about that very thing. Food rules should not overrule God's voice. And this is what Peter had, had to learn here. And he's never eaten anything unclean. Now, now that the description, the rules themselves, you can find if you wanted some really exciting reading this afternoon. Um, go to Leviticus and read the food laws in Leviticus 11 about being what is clean and unclean. And then that phrase, unclean, applies to a lot of other things as well. Um, diseases and skin diseases and um, how you handle a dead body when someone dies, and who touches it, and there is a very intricate, detailed process affecting so many aspects of day-to-day life for one to remain clean and avoid being unclean. And you find that word, unclean, 108 times in Leviticus, and about food specifically in the 11th chapter. So Peter was simply doing what he thought God wanted him to do what he thought all people who are sons and daughters of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are supposed to do. But God has something else in mind. God breaks God's own rules to get to us. It sounds pretty strong when you when you first read that, but you know, I I, I got that from um, one of, the, one of the commentaries I was reading, and um, that's the way the, the writer put it. And when you, when you think about it, well, yeah. Isn't that what grace is all about? <laughs> you know, we, we, we hear heaven is pure and perfect, and how can anyone enter heaven if they have sin? Well, God has to break the rule somehow and make a way for us to get there, and it's through faith in His Son and His death and resurrection. And, and so... In this one in particular, if you go back to the Gospel of Mark, which we looked at last year, and I want to read this because it, it, it is, is really important in, in this whole issue about food, about clean and unclean, and what Jesus did and said. So this is the seventh chapter of, of Mark, and I'm going to pick it up at the, um, at the 14th verse. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone. And understand this, nothing outside a person can defile them by, make, by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. After he left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull, he asked? Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach, and then put out of their body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. And it's almost like that's just pushed aside or forgotten. 
Now, it is a comment by Mark in parentheses in the middle of a quote from Jesus, to be clear, but it's still part of God's word. So Jesus was already dismantling the law or the way the law was used, taught, and understand even before he went to the cross and rose again and the church started after Pentecost. He went on. What comes out of the person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. So this is consistent with, with Jesus' teaching that, that food laws in particular in this passage, but other laws about Sabbath, for example. Jesus seemed to go out of his way to break Sabbath rules because he'd do a lot of healings on the Sabbath. And, and, and technically, he wasn't supposed to do that. And the Pharisees were quick to point that out. But Jesus always had the right answer for them, had something deeper to point out. So Jesus changed the rule about food or helped them see what the intent of the rule really is. And God is teaching Peter what he requires and who can come to him through this vision. <clears throat> I also see something here about the power of three. So, so you have Cornelius sending three people to Peter. And um, also Cornelius had the dream of three in the afternoon, but maybe that's not quite as, as important. Um, but, and then three men are looking for you. Don't hesitate to go to them, God says. Now, now it says there in, in, in Acts 10 that you know, Peter heard them coming. So it was almost as if something knew that he was supposed to go out there, but he was hesitant. And God said, no, go and meet them. There's three men coming. Um, what else about Peter and three? Well, the night Jesus was betrayed and, and under arrest and under that mock trial, where was Peter? Out in the courtyard warming himself by the fire with some others, and he's asked, hey, aren't you one of them? And he denied them not once, not twice, but three times. After the resurrection of Jesus, you go to John 20, and Jesus asked him, Peter, do you love me? And he says, of course I do. And Jesus repeats it, Peter, do you love me? And he says it a third time, Peter, do you love me? So there, there's that. Also keep in mind that this house was next to the shore. Now, it wasn't the shore that Peter knew, the Sea of Galilee, where his fishing business was, but it was the shore of the Mediterranean. And, and, and so there's something about that, that location that this dream comes and brings him back to, to what he used to be, where he was. Um, that story of Jesus reinstating Peter was on the shore. They were just fishing. So all of these connections, all of these reminders are, are going to be running through Peter's mind. Um, and, and, and so it is three men come to him, Jesus, and, and more importantly, God speaks to him in this dream three times because he's hesitant, because he's not seen it, because he's not ready to three times. And think throughout scripture about threes, and, and you see so much more of that. You have three visitors coming to Abraham, angels, and one of them was God himself in, in the form of a man speaking to them. You have the Holy Trinity being three. Jesus with his um, 
disciples, including Peter, you had the three inner circle disciples in, in several gospel passages. So Peter is, is, is being reminded in various ways of what Jesus was truly all about and how he again needs to change. And so these men arrive at his house and they tell him about they are from Caesarea, from a man named Cornelius. He's a God-fearing man who, who the Jews in his town respect and love and, and appreciate him. Even though he's a Roman soldier, he has that, that um, reputation, that positive reputation among the Jews in Caesarea. <clears throat> so what do they want? Would you come to Cornelius' home and speak to us. Sounds like a simple request. But Peter, before this vision, probably would have politely declined. And we're going to see more next week why that, why that would have happened as we get to the rest of this chapter. But Peter preached throughout Acts to large crowds, spoke boldly before the Sanhedrin, called out deception in the church, spoke words of healing, spoke words that brought a woman back to life. This is not a man who's afraid to talk. This is not a man who's afraid to say the truth even when his own life is on the line, and yet he could be hesitant about a simple request to speak at someone's house. And we're going to kind of hold on to that thought until next week when we pick it up for the rest of this chapter. Was Peter ready to speak in the home of a Gentile Roman soldier? Because that description to Peter and other people like him in, in his day, other, other Jewish men, even very devout and religious Jewish men, even followers of Jesus, would look at that description and think, enemy, 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 unclean. Let's pray. Lord, may your word go forth on our lives. May we recognize ourselves in these people, in these, in these situations. And although much of the miraculous and the, and the visions and trances may not be something that we've experienced, Lord, may we see what you have given us. May we recognize the powerful moments in our life that, that come in a whole variety of ways and be reminded that God is in those as well, that, that God is there alongside us ready to, to help, ready to um, bring comfort, ready to uh, inspire, ready to be God in us and help us to be ready to, like Peter, do what you ask us to do, speak where you want us to speak, and most importantly, be like Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.